0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, in this special edition, listen to an oral history of a true Tucson original, Agnes nelms Howry. She was what some would call an eccentric millionaire— She had a flair for finding out what made things tick, and throughout her life, she found a variety of ways to positively impact a great number of people, a legacy that continues to this day. Radio producer and oral historian Angus Anderson talked to many people who knew and loved Agnes Howery to assemble an audio portrait. And that story is next on Arizona Spotlight. Mm -hmm. Agnes Nelms-Howery was just known as Aggie to most people. She was born in Houston, Texas in 1923. And that's just about the only precise year that you'll hear mentioned in this show, because it is not a traditional biography. It's an oral history, built from the recollections of people who knew Aggie well. As such, there will be omissions and contradictions and doubtless some misperceptions, because as most of us know, memory can be a truly funny thing. Most of these interviews were recorded during the time of COVID, on cell phones and through computer connections, so the sound quality will vary. They were collected by Angus Anderson. He's an oral historian and digital media producer at the University of Arizona Libraries. Agnes Howrey died in 2014, and it was earlier this year that Anderson was hired to produce this history. He found that Agnes Howry's lifelong preference to stay out of the limelight and avoid public attention made finding material about her difficult. The best resource ended up being the voices that you will hear next. Some of them may sound familiar to you. I'll tell you their names at the end.
1: He's a totally fascinating person, a very smart, very articulate She was extremely kind and quintessentially American in the best sense. No nonsense.
2: You know, I know right from wrong, and I'm going to act on it. Reputation was not something she was ever concerned about. She was her reputation, that's the way she defined it. Leading a worthwhile life was what
3: a reputation was all about. If you'd met her or met her on the street, you'd have never guessed that she had the kind of resources she had.
4: She liked the colorful
5: plaid men's linen shirts. She uh, told me what great, great buys she got at um, Goodwill. <laughs> she never really talked about money at all, ever. But she would joke saying when we went to thrift shops, well, you know, uh, if we buy our stuff here, we have more money to spend on other
4: things. She her bedroom curtains were tattered and thankfully the room flooded and I finally got to change the carpet and the curtains, but she refused to let me replace those tattered curtains because there was no point in it.
6: She had the storage shed out in the back and she wanted me to like sort out the stuff from it. And there were cans of peas in there that had, were so old and dried out you could hear them rattling inside the can and I was like, we just have to take these to the dump. Oh, can't you take them to the food bank? I'm like, no, no.
4: <laughs> And she always said she wasn't a debutante, but, you know, she came from an extremely wealthy family. Agnes really wasn't into it at all.
6: She really
7: cared about people that were, didn't have many opportunities and that were um, struggling against many odds.
3: So she was down to earth in some remarkable ways, but then in terms of what she wanted to talk about, you better be up on world events. You better be reading the New York Times, and you better be able to have a conversation about it.
8: She wasn't a frivolous person. That's that's the way I would put it. She was a serious person.
4: Every room in the house had books and books and books and books and books. And one bedroom was just industrial shelving that was floor-to-ceiling books. It was to- all cataloged by the way.
9: We we had so many topics to talk about. I mean, we, we just went from topic to topic to topic to topic.
6: She didn't just talk. She didn't, she, I mean, she would contribute to the conversation, but she wanted to hear what you thought about things. Even when you were, like, 18, she talked to you like you were a peer.
10: Talking with Agnes was always fun uh, because it was a little bit challenging. She could be funny, she, you know, she, she had a sense of humor, but, you know, she didn't, I don't think she tolerated BS at all. She was feisty, willing to have an argument about something, a friendly argument about something.
9: uh, She had a sly sense of humor, and sometimes a little bit too subtle for a lot of people. And she had a real loud, hearty
3: laugh. She had her Hofbräu beer steins chilled in the freezer when you got there, and you'd sit out on the sun porch or in her room there that overlooked Tucson, and just sit and have a beer often and talk about all manner of things.
5: Aggie had an old Mercedes, a great old car, didn't want anybody else. Actually, I don't think she trusted anybody else to drive as well as she drove, because she drove beautifully.
2: I've never seen anyone parallel park the way she could do it. I was always embarrassed. She would usually say,
3: get out of the car, I'll do it. She drove around Tucson in her little Mercedes station wagon and would carry around a a cooler in the car stocked with beer in it because as I remember her saying nothing quenches your thirst like cold beer so you have to have something to drink because the air conditioner is not great in the Mercedes. She had different cats that she just really
6: loved she talked about them like her kids basically and she had the whole porch screened in so that they could go out and have this sort of like catio out there. Marca, that was the cat she had right when I first met her and Marka died pretty soon after that. But she had, on her desk, she had a picture of Dr. Howery and a picture of Marca. <laughs> Agnes
4: used to have an old barber chair. Think of a barber chair from the 50s, that's what it was. Oh, it was sitting on her back porch, I believe. And that was her most favorite place to sit.
2: Her steadfastness and bubbling charm were just constant presences. She was always ready to celebrate. I'm sorry, it sort of all blurs because uh, being with her was like that.
8: She grew up in a very wealthy family in Texas.
5: And I said, Aggie, where'd all this money come from? <laughs> she said, oh, well, my father was an oil man. My mother was, came from money as well, so they made a good team.
9: She and her twin sister were shipped off to Paris while her father had their mansion built in Houston. And she does not remember that time with any fondness at all. She did not.
6: She went to French boarding school, which she hated. none sitting you on the back of the hand with rulers and making you speak French and that kind of thing.
4: But Agnes fell in love with France. And as long as she could, she traveled to France. And she spoke French and she drank French champagne.
5: All the while, this magnificent house was going up. And she showed me pictures of her house in, I think it was Architectural Digest. Gorgeous stained glass that they'd commissioned. Beautiful woodwork.
6: Their house in Houston had a huge mural that had been custom painted by some famous artist. It was like Robin Hood, like scenes from Robin Hood, and the family's faces were painted into the mural. Agnes was brought up
4: oh my goodness, in a 23,000 square foot home that had a staff. And she was taught how to run that household. And there were certain rules for people who worked for you and certain rules for your friends, and they were not the same. And you did not call her Agnes until you were given permission.
8: My sense was that she admired her mother a great deal and that she looked to the to the example of her mother. But I also had the sense that Her parents were emotionally
2: distant. Her mother founded the first 13 Planned Parenthood clinics in the state of Texas. And that was an extraordinarily bold thing to do. Aggie got a lot of that strong mindedness and a lot of that drive and purpose from her mother. And I met old Mrs. Milnes a couple of times, and she was a formidable person.
9: For the first 10 years or so, when we became pretty close friends, she had no use for her father. And at one point, she says, he was just a fool. Uh, and I knew a little bit about him. I said, well, Aggie, he couldn't have been all that bad. He was the general manager of the Houston airport. She said, well, my mother owned it.
6: She told me she decided not to have kids because she didn't want to subject, she didn't want them to go through what she's gone through and didn't just didn't want it, that responsibility
5: she was a tomboy and her sister was not so i think she just built upon that and maybe she constructed her own persona as as being different from her twin sisters and maybe needed to do that
6: when she was i don't know maybe in high school she played tennis once with george bush the george bush the elder and That's the generation and the class of people that she grew up with. You think of like Barbara Bush, that's like the prototype that she would have been expected to be. And she just completely bucked the mold.
4: She wasn't a great student, she used to tell me. What was the name of that girl's school she went to? Brenmar, but she didn't get in the first year. She didn't make the qualifications and she was devastated. And she had to work really hard to get it the next year. She was already
2: a very independent person shortly after she graduated from Bryn Mawr and decided to move to New York because she didn't want to go home to Houston and be a debutante. She had worked briefly at the U.N. and it was just a sort of small informal place and the human rights efforts were beginning at that point. She remembered vividly having seen Mrs. Roosevelt at work So there was a lot of heady idealism at the beginning of the UN. Maggie drank deep from that, and then shortly thereafter went to work for my dad, Alger Hiss, at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace.
1: She worked for a man who was a golden boy. You know, he had been in the Roosevelt administration high up. Uh, he had been to Yalta. And he had been the first secretary general of the United Nations. And then he became, you know, a very prestigious position. He became the president of the Carnegie
2: Endowment for Peace. That job, which became a close friendship, that lasted the rest of my dad's life, was probably, in some ways, a turning point in her life. That was the biggest thing that affected where she ended up with her life. I don't think it was the trial. That was, that, that was afterwards. I think that her desire to help people came from, that's what he did. That's what the United Nations did. I was finding some remarks she made the other day in which she said, he taught me how to reach, how to reach and develop and pursue something that was, oh, don't let it go. Go ahead and do it. If it's a good thing to do, try to do it. There are things we can do that will better the world and that you yourself will enjoy. And that mix is something I think really came to fruition in Aggie, pursuing things that she thought would be important to help, but also had to have fun doing it or it wasn't worth doing.
8: While she was at the Carnegie Endowment, she worked as a researcher, a writer, and editor. She took on a topic that related to the culture and history and politics of a particular region or nation and became an expert on it.
2: Traveled to 60 countries. And by the way, always only traveled coach and always made interesting friendships along the way. It was during Mr. Hiss's tenure at the
1: Carnegie Endowment in the period of McCarthyism, he was accused of being a Russian spy and a communist. algerhiss then went through a long, torturous process of attempting to clearing his name, in which he ended up being indicted uh, and then ultimately convicted of perjury. Back to Agnes, she, as Mr. Hiss's secretary, believed in her boss's innocence, and that belief she took to her grave.
2: She said she had never really been very political. So uh, it surprised her, as it surprised my dad, actually, that he wasn't going to get a fair shake. And later, as a way of, I guess, keeping me out of trouble once Alger was in prison, uh, she actually hired me to work for her, cataloging her extensive collection of history and art books in her apartment. I think she held on to the 3 by 5 cards I wrote uh, all the rest of her life. And she funded
1: films about Alger. She funded Alger himself. She made Alger Hiss's life possible, post-war possible. And the continuing visibility of publication of documents. And she was very attuned to injustice. She was a sharply opinionated woman who did not tolerate injustice.
6: I remember I used to get letters from her and she had it. I mean, she just hated Richard Nixon, right? Cause she viewed him as having done that to Alger. But she had like custom, remember when the Richard Nixon post office stamp came out? She had these envelopes custom made that had like a little image of like a jail with hands gripping bars around where the stamp would go. <laughs> I wish I still had one.
0: Now we'll continue to hear stories from the remarkable life of Agnes Nelms Howery, as told by those who knew her well. Remember, most of these interviews were recorded by producer Angus Anderson during the pandemic, using cell phone and computer connections, so the sound quality will vary.
2: She lived for about 20 years in New York, I guess, before moving to Tucson. And she and her first husband, Chip Lockwood, had an elegant apartment in what was then
4: the swankiest new building in Manhattan. She loved the culture. She loved the museums. She liked the art. She enjoyed opera.
8: She could listen to different um, performances of a classical piece and tell you which one it was, who was playing it, who conducted it.
5: (laughs) Her first husband he was going to an archaeology dig in Arizona. So they went together.
9: Summer archaeological studies sponsored by Emil Howard, And this would have been in the 60s.
5: She later on said to me, I fell in love with Emil Howry then. And she said that was two husbands ago.
2: <laughs> she quickly made a a circle of friends among archeologists and academics at the university, just the informality of Tucson, particularly back then when it was this much smaller community, it clicked. She felt right at home right away. But of course she always kept a base in New York. She had never
5: forgotten about Emil Howery and kind of stayed in touch just peripherally. I think he, he and his wife were a happy, happy couple of, of a different stripe. And so after her death, he kind of blossomed a bit. And this was in his blossoming period, I think, that Agnes picked up on that. And her second husband at that point, Dayton, whatever his name was, had gone by the boards. And so she moved in on Emil, and they were married and began a just a wonderful time. They just had the best time. You know, they weren't married all that long before Emil died. And during that period, that two year period, they packed in a lot.
6: It was clear that he was the love of her life. I mean, she just loved the world of him, so. She told me this funny story. Um, her first husband, Chip, called her at one point. I think they sort of stayed in touch over the years. and. Um, he said something like, "Whatever happened to Dr. Howry? Did, did did you ever keep track of him?" And she's and she this is her telling me this. Pardon me for being crude, but I said to him, "Yeah, he's right here in bed next to me." And she just thought it was the funniest story ever. And like it's it's funny because she thought that was a crude story, which it really wasn't.
4: Agnes used to tell a tell the story. She went and saw a play or something about the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And she said that when she got done with that story, was like, that's when the light bulb went off that she would tell this much more elegantly than I am, but that there was really oppressed people and and that really bothered her. Her philanthropy came after
2: the period in which she was an investigator of conditions, after the period in which she was uh, zipping around the globe. She was politically
8: very liberal and concerned about civil rights issues. You know, she was motivated to fund groups that were under siege, under attack, underrepresented, underserved. Another area was scientific research, um, universities, teachers, education, and training. And then there were cultural areas that appealed to her, particularly art, music, film, Photography.
2: Projects that she her word for them were plussy, P-L-U-S hyphen Y, plussy, meaning they would add to something. And then if they panned out, she
4: called them Marvie. She would find people throughout her life, she did, that she thought had something to offer the world, and David Yetman was one of those, and so was Gary Nabhan. And he started the Native Seed Project, and she would give them a stipend to work on their stuff and pay attention to what they were doing. And that's what she enjoyed doing most.
8: She was in touch with the children of people that she funded, you know, second generation connections. So there's a network of people, I think, whose lives were touched one way or another through support that she provided. She didn't want to see her name in the program at the symphony. It was more likely to be something that was a personal appeal based on somebody that she knew and she thought that work and the person were valuable. Agnes worked with me on the court
7: interpreting issues for 30 years at the university. The first time I ever heard from Agnes was through a voicemail and she said I'd like be of help I thought well maybe she just wants to volunteer when I explained to her a lot of people who were interpreting in federal court didn't have the competence necessary to be doing their job we need to have a place that all of these interpreters could come and work on their language and their interpreting skills. I think she actually told me to write a proposal. It was a surreal moment. Just taking a look at her, Mm -hmm. wouldn't believe that she had any of the resources that it turns out that she had. When she left, I told my student worker, and she nearly fainted without Agnes I don't think any of this would have ever happened.
1: When we really got to know our, uh was when we did uh, the repatriation of the Snake Town materials to the Gila River Indian community, and uh, she funded that repatriation.
5: And that had not been done before howrie died, so probably in a way she thought she was, you know, taking some responsibility for him as well in doing this.
4: She knew I was a single mom and she knew I wanted to go to nursing school and she told me that she would pay for me to go to nursing school anywhere I wanted to go. I went to Pima, she got up pretty easy. But she um, actually came to my graduation. She was very proud I, I succeeded at
6: that.
2: The only thing that I ever knew that she put money into that was not startup was the bricks and mortar of the tree ring
10: building. We have our, had our collections stored underneath the football stadium, where there were pipes that were, could burst, and they did burst at times, and flood the flood the archive. And so she became really animated. You know, she just said, "This cannot stand. We should do something better." So she, she made an initial contribution toward renovating in the stadium, and then finally uh, she gave a much larger amount, enabled us to build the, the new tree ring laboratory. There was a desire by us and by the dean of the College of Science especially that we should name the building after her, and she refused. said, no, 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 I'm not a significant figure in dendrochronology. I'm not doing this to put my name on the building.
9: And it took the university nine years from the time she came up with the money to actually get the building started, and she was indignant about that. I never heard her have anything good to say about university administrations. She did not like them. In general, she didn't like administrators.
8: But she loved being involved with the people at the university and the very interesting things the university was doing.
4: I miss her all the time, and you know, for somebody to have such a devastating disease as Alzheimer's. She had great poise throughout the whole thing. We would go somewhere and I would tell her, you know, Agnes, she'd ask me, well, this is new. And I'd say, no, we've been by that. And she'd say, you know, every time I go out, it's a new adventure. Some of her friends were like amazingly wonderful, but some of them she didn't see anymore. And it was kind of sad. She kind of isolated herself in some regards because she said she didn't have anything intellectual to offer them anymore.
6: She she was definitely just very eccentric in some ways and just a very well-read, well-traveled, interesting person who really helped open my eyes to a lot of cool, interesting things about the world.
3: She, I think, fostered this appreciation for art and literature and things that, for me, at the time, a teenage boy and later... I might not have ever had those things, I might not have ever had those interests, if it hadn't been for the connection with Mrs. Howard.
4: She was just so much fun. I'm glad I met her because I did work with her for 25 years, but I only really needed to about the first five and then I just couldn't leave after that.
2: (laughs) She had a very strong sense of values and of human dignity and human worth. She was not a religious person in any formal sense. But fairness and decency and treating people right were of utmost importance to her.
1: She dispensed with formalities. She invited no flattery. She was pragmatic, swift, generous, kind, and uh, very conscious of not imposing on anyone. I have only the fondest memories of her. She was a, a, a great lady.
6: Yeah, she was. I miss her
0: thanks to Angus Anderson at the University of Arizona Libraries for his work creating this oral history of the life of Agnes Nelms Howry. The voices you heard included Leon Botstein, Tony Hiss, Stephen Wertle, Heidi Wirtle, Susie and Paul Fish, Diane Brett Hart, Tammy Barnett, Nan Rawlings, Mary Greer, Tom Swetnam, Greg Godarian, Roseanne Gonzalez, and David Yetman. Thank you for listening to this Tucson original edition of Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.